Well, happy Memorial Day weekend and happy summer break. I know many of you have finished school and you're wrapping up and some of your parents are thrilled that it's summer break. Some of your parents are like, now I really have to work, right? Because a lot going on uh, at home. Um, But anyways, really glad you're here this morning. If you will, open your Bible with me to Jonah chapter 4. We're in the Old Testament in Jonah chapter 4. And Will, if you can pull me down just a little bit, I might get a little feisty and it's already a little loud, so... So Jonah chapter 4, so in Jonah, Jonah's a brief book in the Minor Prophets, not because it's unimportant, but because it's brief. And the prophet Jonah gets commanded by God to go and to preach a message of repentance to a place called Nineveh. Nineveh uh, was in Assyria, which um, is opposed to uh, God and God's people. We're enemies of God and God's people, but God comes to Jonah and says, hey, I want you to go and tell them that destruction is coming their way. And so Jonah does exactly opposite of what he was commanded by God to do, and he flees to the farthest known place he could flee to on a boat. But as he's fleeing, God comes through a storm, disrupts Jonah's plans to disobey, and eventually it leads to him being cast into the sea. A large fish comes, scoops up Jonah, and Jonah for three days miraculously is sustained inside this large sea creature, and he has a moment of repentance and prayer between him and God. One thing you notice throughout the book of Jonah is that Jonah is in communication with God. He just, he just does not like what God is saying. So it's not that he can't hear God or doesn't know God, it's that he doesn't want what God wants. And so he flees from God. And so in Jonah chapter 2, we see this, and um, Jonah reorients and turns his life towards God. Obviously, he is helped to do so by being sustained miraculously inside of a large sea creature. And at the end of Jonah chapter 2, he's then spit uh, onto the sea, vomited uh, up onto the shore to go to Nineveh. Chapter 3 chronicles his mission to go in and tell them to repent. He brings a very short word that we can see, and immediately the people are cut to the core, and they believe, and they repent, all the way up to the king. From the king down, God moves in such a miraculous and powerful way that they cover themselves with clothing of repentance, ashes of repentance, and change their direction, change their mind, and reorient to God. Those who were enemies of God and enemies of God's people are changed and redirected. And so we'll pick up in verse 10 of chapter 3. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And so as we go into chapter 4 of Jonah this morning, the thing I want us to notice is that God's sovereign mercy is displayed through his interactions with Jonah and the people of Nineveh. We see God's powerful, all-knowing, all-controlling mercy, not giving what they deserve, not only to Jonah, but to Jonah's enemies in Nineveh. And we see in verse 1 in chapter 4, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. Another translation in the original is literally, for Jonah thought it was evil for God to do those things. It was godless of God to show mercy to Nineveh. Yeah, some of you are giggling. That is laughable if you think about it. It, was, and it wasn't like he was put off a bit or disappointed that they didn't, he didn't get to see the full destruction and wrath of God, but it says he was exceedingly displeased, abundantly displeased, and he was angry. Anger often comes about from our view or vision of justice not being fulfilled. When something is unjust done to us, done to others, whatever, it invokes in us anger. 
And so when God in his kindness was merciful to a repentant Nineveh, it was displeasing to Jonah the prophet who had been redeemed and rescued by God and sent by God to these people to do the will of God. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O God, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And then the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Let's stop here for a sec. Jonah said, This is the entire reason why I rebelled and I left. Because I know your character. And I knew once I brought this message that you would do something like this. Jonah wanted to be sovereign. Jonah wanted to show no mercy to his enemies. He knew the character of God, and because he knew the character of God, he wanted to disobey God because he did not want the fruit of God's character coming to bear on his enemies. He was angry because what he expected to happen to his enemies did not happen, and what he did not want to happen to them did come, come to be. And so we look at this heart exposed There is one positive sign. What can you do in your anger when you feel angry at God? Well, Jonah goes and he prays. That's a good step. And this is just a little side note. If you're feeling angry or discouraged or displeased with God, you can either run from God and go to Tarshish. We saw how that worked out. Or you can confess it and admit it to God. Now, him knowing God's character and God's power, I mean, he said it would be better for me to die. What if God had just said, Okay, you're right, boom, dead. God was still exercising mercy even in the midst of Jonah's, uh, how do we say it now, temper tantrum. He was going, separating himself. He did not like what he saw. He did not like that his enemies were being forgiven. But, but I also don't want to miss the character of God being understood by this prophet, that God is gracious. God is gracious in that he gives that which is not deserved. And the ultimate manifestation of the gift of God through his son Jesus is that God gives himself to his enemies. So he's not just giving the benefits of God to people who are not of God. He's giving the very nature of God extended to these people, making those who are not a people into a people. So he said, I know that you're gracious. I know that you're merciful. I know that you're not going to punish them even though they deserve it because they've relented. It says that God's character is slow to anger. You know how many people I have to counsel because they're too slow to anger? Zero. To date. I was reflecting with Stephanie. Um, It's been 21 years around this week from my first paid internship in ministry. 21 years. And in 21 years, I've never counseled someone for being too slow to anger. On the flip side, I've talked to many people who have anger problems. And so when we fly off, when we fly off the handle, if, if we react quickly in anger, that's reflective of where we really are. And one of the commentators I was reading this week said, if you want to see the true state, state of your soul and your spirit, it's not so much found in how you act because we can be in control. 
The true state of your soul and your spirit is how you react. And Jesus speaks a lot to that end. I'm not sure if you know this, but I'm currently serving as a youth pastor of Christ Community Church as well. We have a booming student ministry, about 15 students every Wednesday night. Ross Quayer has been a huge help. Scott Wingerter comes. I'm talking to a few other people helping out. And I love student ministry. Someone's like, man, does that stress you out? I'm like, no, it's like wearing a comfy old pair of shoes. You have a pair of shoes that are kind of like friends to you that you're like, you just wear them, you, they, they, they get you. It's like student ministry. I get it. They're so honest. We had one student say, man, I don't really know about much about God, but I'm, I'm interested to learn more. I was like, man, if the adults at church would say that, we could go somewhere. If y'all sitting out there like, man, I'm not sure I believe in all this, awesome, let's start there. See, we come and we act and everything else, so we can act right, but the real state of your, your faith is really seen in how you react to situations. And so when I'm irritable, when I am cranky, when I fly off the handle, when I fire off a sharp email, usually to my wife, I've learned to do that. Guys, if you're, if you're quick on your fingers, make friends with your wife or a close friend and send it to her or him first. Because Stephanie's learned like, man, wow, that is so articulate. Good for you. Don't send that. Do not. Man, I could tell that you're feeling that. Why don't you, why don't you pray over that? Or hey, maybe you cut out like the 94 other sentences and send the first one asking for the meeting. How we react. And I know for me now as I've grown in faith that when my soul is tired or my body is tired or my mind is tired, I, send, I tend to kind of creak back into like infantile immaturity at times. I kind of degrade a bit. And so it's not just because I haven't done my quiet times. At times it's just like I need a long nap and maybe an extended weekend. But we see Jonah here exceedingly upset because of God's character. See, a lot of times when I counsel people who are angry with God, it's because they don't believe that he's gracious or they don't believe he's merciful or they don't believe, they think he's mad at them, and so they're going to be mad too. They don't believe God's overwhelmingly loving. They, they believe God is short on love and not towards them. They believe that God is just orchestrating disaster for their harm. So most of the time, the unbelief that I counsel folks through, and that many of you who have been in ministry walk with people through, is, is unbelief in God's character. Jonah was mad because he did believe God's character were those things. Because God is patient. Because God is not on your timeline, he's on his own. That's why Jonah's mad. The apostle Paul got saved and was in the wilderness, wandering the wilderness, they say, calculated up to about 17 years before he began his missionary journey. That's a long time for those of us in the first half of life. So the first thing I want to point out to you is this, is that it's not enough simply to believe that belief must be evidenced by our trust. It's not simply enough to believe. In James chapter 2, verse 19, it says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Satan believes God is who he says he is. The demons, who are the angels sent by Satan to do his deeds, believe God is who he says he is. They just don't believe God is victorious. They've been deceived. But they even believe in the character and qualities of God. They just don't believe that they're misled in the execution of that belief. Just because you believe God is good, God is gracious, and everything else, if you don't trust that applies not only to you, but also to your enemies, there's a problem. So there's a farm in the area that has a uh, cornfield maze. 
Have y'all ever been there? It's a cornfield maze. It's P6, P52, P4, P-something farms, something. I grew up, and my parents too early in life allowed me to watch some horror movies, and there's this movie back in the 80s with kids in the corn. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't. it's just terrifying still. Ever since in movies that have cornfield scenes, when they're running through cornfields, running from bad guys in cornfields, I'm not a big fan of cornfields. And my kids are like, Daddy, let's go through the cornfield maze. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So make sure I had my pocket knife, my concealed. I didn't bring my handgun that day. but I didn't, I didn't love the idea. And I say, well, can we at least do the easy one? Because I could see in the easy one, there's a lot of dead corn and there's enough gaps for me to run directly out of screaming like a girl if I had to. But the thing that brought me peace was there was this huge, probably 50 plus foot stand in the middle with some guys that are harnessed to it looking around the entire thing. And from their perspective, they could see far more than I was able to by my limited perspective. And they could see when people were trapped or they could see a large man like me filling his arms or throwing his undershirt in the air like a white flag of surrender. They could see more than I am able to see. You see, Jonah believed God's character, but he didn't trust God. He didn't trust that what God was doing was in God's best interest, which in turn is in God's people's best interest. And I think that's where a lot of our root of doubt is found, is not believing that God is seeing more than what we are able to see. And therefore, we are not trusting God, even though we might believe God to be true. And so when we're merely believing that God is true objectively, but not holding on to that truth as it's applied to us and in other people's lives, we then find ourselves being mad at God. And like I said, at least when we see Jonah being mad at God, at least he goes to God in prayer, but his prayer is filled with suicidal thoughts. Throughout this passage, we see three times Jonah would rather be dead than be experiencing God's mercy as it's being relayed to the people of Nineveh. That's how displeased he was. Pick up with me in verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. So he made some sort of form of shelter. He sat under it in the shade until uh, until he should see what should become of the city. So, still waiting. Still waiting to see if God might actually still come through for him and destroy these people. He literally went and made a place to sit to watch what God is going to do. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Look at this. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. God's mercy towards people, mad. Big leaf over my head, give me comfort, happy, exceedingly. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and he said, it is better for me to die than to live. Second thing we see here is that God's sovereign control over creation is not always in accordance to our will. God's sovereign control over creation is not always in accordance to our will. 
In fact, when we pray to God for God to do what we want, we do so acknowledging that He is the only hope we have. If I believe God is sovereign over salvation of my children, then I pray to God alone to save my children. And I'm hopeful in God because He is the only hope they have. However, we have a hard... The issue of sovereignty, even those of us who enjoy Reformed theology, we like sovereignty in theory, but we're not huge fans expressly in practice all the time. And I'm not saying that to be flippant, and I'm not saying that to be harmful. And until we come to trust and understand that God's character is infinite and eternal, so His goodness is infinite and eternal, never wavering. His mercy is infinite and eternal and never wavering, etc., etc. Until we come to really hold on to that, we will often feel offended when things are not occurring on our timeline. Or when things are happening that feel unfair to us. If you know me at all, you know that I, I, on most days, by God's grace, am fairly compassionate and sympathetic to people. And so I'm not saying this to be cold, and I'm not saying this to be difficult or hard on you. As many of you know, Stephanie and I adopted a little boy back in 2012, the spring of 2012, and within a week we had to give him back because his mom changed her mind. While I knew God's sovereignty was in his character, in his grace, I didn't fully understand that decision. And to be honest with you, on certain days I still don't. But there is comfort in knowing that God is good and God is in control and God is merciful and God is full of grace and God is just. And then having an appropriate view of myself in comparison with the holy and perfect God, that I am not those things naturally. That any evidences of grace or mercy or long-suffering on my part are merely fingerprints of my Creator. And any of that that comes supernaturally in me and through me is evidence of His Holy Spirit doing a work in me. That on my own, I am impatient and I want to be sovereign and I want to be in control and I want justice on those I dislike and I want mercy on those that I like. I want to control how God's engagement with people goes. I mean, think about how we think. If a bad person's house was flooded in Harvey, what do we think? Well, that's God's justice. If a good person's house was flooded in Harvey, how do we think? God, why? They're, they're so good. Part of the question of goodness of people is usually based on a broken scale. We're gauging goodness based upon our standard rather than comparing goodness to God's standard. And so when we see scriptures that say things like, no one is righteous, no, not one. And even the best person, that's hard to understand and offensive until we understand the goodness of God and the righteousness of God. When we see the beauty and the righteousness of God, then we can begin growing in our trust of God so that we can understand that God's sovereign control over creation is not always in accordance to our will. There are going to be times where God exercises His will that doesn't line up with our preference or our desire or our will. And at least we see Jonah articulating those things to God. But then God brings a plant. God created a plant to provide shade. Interestingly enough, they're not certain what kind of plant leaf it was, but it was a plant with a larger leaf. 
Some theologians, maybe they're reaching, say it was probably a castor oil leaf, which would be fitting because castor oil was used to make people sick. Right? And some of the commentators went too far with it, like, well, Jonah needed to be, get the ickiness. Right. No. He was super glad at the comfort he received. Yet the next day when a worm came and destroyed that leaf, he was exceedingly sad and wanted to die yet again. And then a hot easterly wind came towards him. The first few times I read this passage, especially my first few times reading through the Bible, I was wondering, like, why is God messing with him so much? Like, I sympathized with Jonah. It's interesting, don't you find yourselves, and maybe I'm the only one, sympathizing with people, the creation, rather than the creator? Sympathy with creation tends to come out with why would a good and loving God ever send anyone into hell? Right? That, that's a sympathy to the creation. But to sympathize with God, we have to ask the question, why would a holy and perfect, powerful and excellent God ever allow any sinners into his presence? That's sympathizing with God. I think God invites us to, to sympathize both ways. God is perfect and holy and he deserves righteousness. And humanity has fallen and broken because of sin. And we're all in that camp. And so our opportunity is to enjoy God's mercy and celebrate it as it extends to other people. We see once again this infantile regression of Jonah. You saw that he needed rest. God provided covering for rest. He had his rest. He woke up and again was offended. Verse 9, But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? So at first he asked Jonah, Do you do well to be angry? Does that, does that help you? Is your anger producing something good? Last week we talked about repentance. One of the marks of true biblical repentance out of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11, was anger, such anger. We talked about how that was anger toward the sin. Anger toward the things, the thoughts, the attitudes, the behaviors that robbed us from enjoying God. And so there's appropriate anger when we're angry for the injustice done to God. But in this anger... Jonah feels like God has treated him unjustly. And so his anger is happening, and God's asking him, how is this benefiting you? And friends, if you're here today and you're feeling angry at God, you're not alone. But let me ask you this. Do you do well to be angry? Is it producing in you the fruit that you're hoping for? Is it solving the problems that you hope would be solved. He's mad about a plant withering. He was glad about the plant, mad about the plant, mad about the people of Nineveh. And here's his response. And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? 
The third thing we see here is we must not, ex- we must not seek only to personally enjoy God's mercy, but pray for it to extend to all nations. I think we love the character of God for ourselves and those we love. But we don't have that same desire for those who are enemies of ours. Oftentimes we find ourselves praying for destruction of the enemies of our nation. But what would it look like if we prayed for God to save them through Christ? What would be different? What would be changed? See, I think many of us, myself included, can often find ourselves selfishly enjoying the benefits of knowing God, but then want to limit or regulate who else gets to know and enjoy Him as well. You see, Jonah was very selective in his joy of God's mercy. He loved the plant. He despised the mercy shown to the people of Nineveh. So let me ask you this. Did you notice the bit about the cattle? He said 120,000 people and all the cattle. So I read that and I was like, this has to like, be broken and not completed. And there's arguments both ways that it is. But if we look back at the previous verses, Jonah was glad about a created thing, the plant. And Jonah was sad when that created thing was destroyed, the plant. And so God was utilizing Jonah's own selfishness to prove his ultimate point. God's mercy extended to the people of Nineveh, fine. Let's say you don't care about 120,000 human beings. He says they don't know the right hand from the left. Literally saying they don't know what they're doing. They're ignorant. They don't have information about the real true God, God until you came today or yesterday. When you came and you proclaimed the goodness of God and the righteous justice of God, they believed and they repented. He's like, they don't know, they're wicked because they don't know any other way. And I think it's super easy for us to point our finger at a bunch of people and how they behave without taking into consideration that they have not known the loving kindness and grace and mercy and patience of the holy true God. And if they don't hold that understanding and belief, then they'll rejoice in the things that they approve of and be mad about the things they do not. God was pointing to another created thing. These plants, this plant you didn't make, you didn't work, guess what? God did. He created it, and then he killed it, and he was right to do it because he's God. And he did so, one, to offer comfort briefly to Jonah, but also to bring comfort deeper to his soul. That ultimately, Jonah's will and his desires for the people of Nineveh were not in line with God's, and that God is sovereign over all creation. And that creation, those 120,000 people, God had created. And although they had rebelled against God because of their sin, and they did not believe God to be true, God was merciful and did not judge them as he was right to do. And it pleased him to do so, and it displeased Jonah. Yet Jonah cared about the plant, and so God was even appealing to his care about the animals. Like, There's a bunch of cattle too, man. If you don't care about the people, but you care about this plant and creation, at least be consistent in your your feelings of being disgruntled. This past week, the students and I, we were going through the Sermon on the Mount, just reading it together. What does it say? What does it mean? How does it apply? And one of the students asked, you know, as Americans... 
How are we supposed to think about people who are enemies? Because what Jesus is saying and what other people are saying, the way we posture ourselves are different. And Jesus says in Matthew 5, 43-48, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, so you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You, therefore, must want what your God in heaven wants. Your perfected hope is only found in and through faith of Jesus Christ. And so I want to ask you this. Who is in your life that is not easy to love that God is calling you to love and forgive? One of my professors in seminary asked this question to us, or made this statement that really became a rhetorical nightmare. To the extent that you are able to love your enemies, that displays the extent to which you love God. The extent that you are able to love your enemies is the extent of which you really love God. Now perhaps that was just a seminary challenge. Maybe that's a hypothetical impossibility. Or maybe that aligns us with the statement of you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And until we're there, we need a Savior who has and is the perfection of love. Until we are able to want those things for our enemies, we must cry out to the one who is and has and will be that love. God's justice is never disconnected from His love. God's wrath is never disconnected from His love or His goodness. God is perfectly those things. Yet I wonder sometimes in our patriotism, and I'm not anti-patriotism, I'm grateful for our country, I'm grateful for those of you who serve, and I'm grateful for those that we're remembering this weekend who gave their lives for our freedom to gather here today as one expressed freedom among many others. But we, never, we must never allow our patriotism to extend beyond our theology, our knowledge of God. There is time for war. There is time for peace. That's been evident throughout history, recorded history that we have. That doesn't mean we don't pray and that we don't hope, that we don't ask God for revival in countries that we can't even get into. And He is good to do those things, and at times it doesn't make sense. So I want to ask you this question as I wrap up Jonah, as we reflect on this. Who has the Lord placed in your life to extend grace and mercy to? Someone in your family, a neighbor, a friend, a coworker, a fellow church member? Who has God placed in your life to begin to display God's mercy and grace to? And I was thinking about what prevents us from really doing that as it pertains to our passion and brokenness for the loss. As I shared, one of the key things we're looking at moving in um, towards our vision of 2020 is one of the key markers is an increasing brokenness for those around us who don't know Jesus 
a desire to see them know Christ, and a desire to reorient our lives around those things. We exist to glorify God by making followers of Jesus Christ who are growing and multiplying, and we believe that takes root and it happens by experiencing authentic community, by discipleship occurring in authentic community, making disciples in authentic community. Authentic community means that we don't get upset and just take our ball and go home. It means we get upset and we press forward and we seek to understand and we show mercy and grace to each other and that we say we're sorry and we accept apologies and then we move forward and that we press in together and we reason together. Those things are a reflection of God's grace to us. So two primary enemies of that, I believe, are number one, time, I think all of us, myself included, are very busy. And I think because our time is limited, this type of love and grace and mercy and passion and, and investment in relationships requires a lot of time. I was recently reading an article that was about Proverbs 31. Ladies, if you haven't ever had a really strong guilt trip, go read Proverbs 31 and do a checklist of your life right now. But Proverbs 31 is over the span of a woman's life. And there's different seasons. And I think we put a lot of pressures on, on ladies and mamas to say, you must be all those things. You must be homeward focused, shepherding our kids and educating them to do all these different things, right? And have a job and be bringing extra income and be a good steward. Of, no, no, no. Proverbs 31 is the span of a woman's life. The time is a concern, right? No, how do we have time to do all this? I remember Stephanie, when we first had Braylon, the first three months, like, she was mom. Like, to leave the house by herself the first eight weeks was like a nightmare. One, we were just terrified to drive with another human being in our car that was helpless. But beyond that, it was just, there's so much, I mean, you had to pack like a duffel bag of, of items, right? And that wasn't her most evangelistic moment. My wife, she prayed a lot, God, please make her stop crying, right? Prayer life increased, but her, her mission was limited because of time. But I wonder if our extension of mercy and mission to those who are far from God hasn't taken place because we haven't carved out and budgeted and scheduled time to engage with friends and neighbors who are far from God. Because it takes intentionality. But I think the second primary reason that we see is fear. Fear of rejection. Fearful that they actually get saved. Because I don't know about you, when people trust Christ I feel, and we ought to feel, a responsibility to treat them as spiritual infants and help train them up. And so that means we're limited on time already, and then we're scared if they come to faith, and golly, that's more mess we have to deal with in our own lives. And so time and fear often go together. There's fear of ruining a relationship because we say something wrong. For those of us with a bit more Calvinistic leaning, there's a little more grace and, and bumpers around that. But there's still that fear of like, what if I say something wrong that offends them, that then they won't be my friend anymore, or if I don't have the answer to their questions, right? We have fear surrounding those things. And I think time and fear are real situations that we have to take in consideration. But that's when we lean into and trust the Holy Spirit of God given to us to go to people that we would not otherwise go to, to extend the mercy of God and the grace of God so that we might speak the word of God and it take root by his power. And so I want you to be asking that question rather than like, oh man, who do I have to evangelize? Who has God placed in your life to extend grace and mercy to? It could be financial help. It could be child care. It could be a listening ear. But who has God placed immediately in your vicinity? A stranger. that You can actually be the light that shows God's mercy and His grace.
Because when Jonah was called and given the authority to do so, he ran. And when God grabbed him and brought him back, he did what he was asked to do obediently. And when God did what was in his will and character to do, Jonah threw a fit. And as we close out Jonah, rather than focusing on Jonah, let's focus on the God who was merciful both to the Ninevites and to Jonah. It's the same God that we worship today, who if you've been running from God, He's just inviting you to stop and come home. He's the God who's up on the tower in the cornfields. He sees way more than we ever see. And so when He calls and He commands, He sees the path forward, even if we cannot. And He's always the voice that will take us there. God's sovereign mercy is displayed through His interactions with Jonah and the people of Nineveh. And that sovereign mercy is extended to us as well. If you're here this morning, you've never hoped in Jesus Christ, who is the fullest display of God's grace and mercy. God sent His Son Jesus to live a life we could not live, to die a death that we deserve on the cross, taking upon Him God's punishment for sin and death, being killed and placed in a tomb for three days. After three days, God in His power rose Jesus from the dead, defeating sin, death, and Satan, so that all who believe and trust in Jesus will be forgiven of their sin, acceptable to God, receiving His mercy and grace. And if you're here today and you realize that you've never hoped in that forgiveness or trusted in that, then today we encourage you, trust Jesus. He is able to rescue you and make you new. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You so much for Your kindness given to us through Your Son, Jesus. We thank You, Lord, that while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. We thank You, Lord, that for all who believe on the name of Jesus Christ and confess with their mouth will be saved. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that You would bring salvation in our midst. Father, I pray You would expose our unbelief and our lack of forgiveness and our anger towards those who are different than us and our lack of mercy and grace. Lord, I pray You would would heal us in those moments. I pray like Jonah, we would confess those things to You, but I pray against any desire to um, be finished with life. And rather, Lord, that we would realign our mind and our thinking and our direction around Your will. God, we thank You for this time. We thank You for Your King, Jesus, that You sent. We pray these things in His name. Amen.